Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the 19th anniversary of September 11th. We talked to Roy Green and Rick Zamperin, who are down there a year later to do a commemorative broadcast. As well, we talked to Bob Bertina about being on air the day it happened. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Alicia Thompson, Scott's daughter. Kurt is in school right now, and I'm online at university. He forgot to record this, so I'm here. Hey, am I getting paid for this? No! No! <laughs> it's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Dad. Yeah. Kurt will be ticked. So, uh, I texted Kurt earlier because we forgot to do this last night. So, and this morning and such, uh, you know, out the door, lots of commotion. And so I texted him at school, which I know I shouldn't do. And it's like, can you record this during recess? He goes, it's COVID-19, Dad. There's no recess. I'm not even supposed to be on the phone. I'm in the bathroom. And that was it. I didn't hear anything from him. So uh, he's being a good boy and staying off his phone. And uh, so then it was upstairs. Alicia, are you up yet? And uh, she started online classes actually uh, yesterday at uh, university. So uh, at least one's home. Kurt's like the only one out of the house. It's hilarious. <laughs> He's the only one working for a living, sort of. Uh, so uh, thanks to Alicia for filling in. And her only condition was, I don't have to scream Scott Thompson, do I? So there you go, a 13-year-old versus an 18-year-old. It is 1210, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you today. There's lots of ways to do that. Uh, through the website, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com, Facebook and Twitter as well. That's where you will find uh, the podcast edition of the commentary there. Would love to hear from you. Uh, we've got a big show today, and uh, man, this came up uh, on us just like, uh, like a horse race, I guess. Uh, 19 years ago, uh, September 11, 2001, the tragic... Uh, the tragic uh, loss of uh, 3,000 people as uh, tr- uh, planes, jets were flown into the World Trade Center, uh, the two buildings, uh, then obviously in Pennsylvania and at the Pentagon as well. And, um, you know, it, it's it, it, every year this, this uh, anniversary, anniversary sounds positive it sounds celebratory every year this date comes up and uh and and we still look at it we those of us that you know can remember it which is odd because those are you know my kids they weren't here they don't remember it any of it but certainly know the legacy of it uh we all hark back to what we were doing and when we heard this tragic news and then how it changed our world uh beyond that here we are 19 years later in a a world crisis in a pandemic uh, probably the first crisis of this privileged generation. And all of a sudden, 9-11 just sneaks up on you because people are so uh, consumed with what is going on and this global pandemic. But yeah, 19 years ago today, this all happened, uh, starting uh, off this morning with the first plane going in at about 8.55 in the morning, I believe. Again, 19 years ago today, uh, how does our uh, impression of terrorism, uh, how is it different now than it was 19 years ago? How is it evolved? And where is that threat now? Let's bring in Alex Wilner, Associate Professor, International Relations, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and is with us now. Alex, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. Hi. So what are your thoughts when you think of 9-11 19 years later as we're in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, it, uh, it's quite interesting, the juxtaposition, right? We've got this global pandemic. Um, Society is trying to recoup from that. Uh, we have a health policy crisis as well. And on top of that, as you're saying, the nearly 20 years uh, anniversary of the 9-11 attacks kind of puts um, counterterrorism and terrorism into um, a certain light and certain perspective. Um, you know, I think there are some broad lessons here, if, you, if you'd like, um, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, not only Al-Qaeda, but ISIS as well, you know, the spectacular rise and fall of both of these organizations um, kind of alludes to the requirement in thinking through counterterrorism is not only a national security, not only a domestic issue, but also global um, and ultimately a military issue. So that's 
one broad lesson here is that at times, you know, counterterrorism requires a, a military solution. Um, and so that's really led to this kind of dramatic rise of global international um, consortium, allies, um, uh, alliances, etc., to kind of tackle this. Um, at the same time, I think, uh, Scott, it's interesting to think that um, a lot of our focus in certain areas in counterterrorism has kind of pushed the um, the focus on tackling radicalization. So not just tackling um, and countering and defeating these organizations themselves, but kind of coming upstream from that and thinking through, well, why is it that individuals radicalize and join these groups to begin with? And that really, that kind of idea um, gained steam um, as a result of ISIS's ability to recruit um, individuals in the West over the last, let's say, 10 years, you know, seven to eight years. And so we've kind of t- tried to tackle terrorism, not just with the pointy end of the stick, um, but also in kind of stripping back the rationale for why individuals um, meet, uh, why individuals radicalize and then ultimately join these groups. Those are kind of the big forces at play over the last 20 years. Um, and I think, though, you know, yes, al-Qaeda to a certain degree has been defeated more than once at this point since 9-11, not only in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq and elsewhere. Um, and then again, we've seen the rise and fall of ISIS, which is, you know, a progeny of al-Qaeda. But there are certainly some exceptionally hot spots globally. I think you've got to keep your eyeball on Africa, in the Sahel region, in Mali, for instance, Burkina Faso, Mozambique, that area. Afghanistan is still an ongoing hot war. That's right. That's 20 years in the making at this point. And then, of course, the flashpoints in the Middle East. So there's still lots of room um, for thinking about the classic counterterrorism, and al-Qaeda is, of course, still um, part of that bigger picture. Uh, terrorism more of a threat before 9-11 than after? Or after more than before, rather? Yeah. I, I think so. Terrorism you know, ebbs and, ebbs and flows. At least the, the al-Qaeda version of terrorism ebbs and flows. Um, certainly there were some, some very high peaks in the you know, 2003 to six period with the war in Iraq, and then again in 2014, 15, and 16, with, um, you'll recall, of course, um, spectacular events in Europe, Australia, Canada, U.S., elsewhere. Um, I think part of this has changed, though, in the focus that it's, uh, and, and our focus has changed in that it's not purely a jihadi question anymore. We're also, um, as a society and as governments, we're also concerned with right-wing extremism and militancy and terrorism, um, and so that's, that's on the rise. I think we are collectively more able to address terrorism. So again, we've got these institutions in place. We have the, to a certain degree, the intelligence capability, the policing capability. Um, we have partners and alliances that are tackling, you know, similar issues. Um, so again, it's an evolution. Terrorism is unlikely to go away. It'll evolve as it is now, um, and and we will respond uh, as as needed. I think, to a certain degree, ISIS was crushed. Um, and, you know, rates of terrorism or degrees of terrorism have declined dramatically over the last three years in certain areas, but they have risen elsewhere, like in, like in parts of Africa, for instance. Uh, what, what did COVID-19 do to all of this? Uh, how has this pandemic affected terrorism? So, so, I mean, it seems to, you know, on the domestic side, it seems to have calmed things down a little bit. Um, there's not a lot of um, not a lot of activity, partly because societies have closed down, because there's curfews, right? It's just more difficult, perhaps, for some domestic groups to meet. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of instability as a result of societies closing down and as a result of the shrinking uh, size of the economy, right? So there's less money to go around in some cases. And some of that, some of that you know, reduction in financing um, hits some countries at border security and policing and intelligence capability and so forth. So we've seen an uptick very recently in the recent months in, in attacks in, in certain areas in Iraq and more broadly in the Middle East and again in Africa. Um, and so some of that is, a, is, is, you know, a shifting priority of states and a lack of general capacity to deal with counterterrorism and public health dynamics. I think that's not necessarily the case in countries like Canada and the U.S. and in parts of Europe. Where, um, where I, I think we can do much more, and we are doing much more on both of these fronts. But certainly, um, you know, terrorism and, and militant groups feed off global instability. Um, and in certain parts of the world, this pandemic has been, you know, a great boost for instability. And so they 
potentially will kind of um, gain or acquire more um, as a result of that. So as countries, nations go through a recovery period, we could easily see them stepping in and trying to take advantage of that. I think that's probably fair. I think that's probably fair. I think, that, you know, in some countries, it, 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 in some countries, the development, the, the redevelopment of the economy um, may favor some groups over others. You know, some some cultural groups, for instance, this is especially perhaps in places where there are in countries where there are multiple uh, minority groups, um, so that could create more divisions. Um, at the same time, you know, again, dealing with the idea of the domestic uh, side of terrorism, um, and especially in Canada and U.S. and elsewhere, I think our focus has shifted from internationally, you know, jihadi um, types of terrorism to the kind of right-wing domestic side of terrorism, and also extremist left-wing as well, and that requires a different response. But I think the scale of the of the challenges is also smaller at that point. So I think we're in a in a pretty good spot in some areas, especially in Canada. But I think there are some worrying trends more broadly globally. I remember in the days, weeks, and months after this attack, uh, the uniting of nations, the uniting of allies, and everyone started working together to try to to fight this and and make the sky safer and such. Uh, lately, we seem to be in a much more divisive world pre-COVID-19. We have another crisis on our hands with COVID-19. Um, did 9-11 unite us? Did it bring us closer together? What can we learn from what happened? Yeah, to a certain degree, it brought some people and some countries and governments closer together. Um, it broke down some of the traditional barriers in the Middle East as well. I think between Israel and some other Sunni countries, for instance, and I think we're seeing that you know the fruits of that uh, more recently with um, you know peace initiatives, I guess, or normalization initiatives between Israel and, and UAE and other countries. Um, so it did bring some countries together, and you'll, you'll remember, you know, George Bush's President George Bush's uh, coalition of the willing, right? The kind of language that led to the war in Iraq. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, turning to the war in Iraq, that was a very highly divisive conflict, um, one that lasted far longer than expected in 2003 probably you know it's a direct result of that was the the rise and fall of isis um so there were some episodes that were highly um dramatic and divisive for for the globe including for nato allies of which canada is a member um uh, and the conflict in libya would be another primary example of that uh, which wasn't necessarily on the counterterrorism front though became something like that so, so you know, the nine, 20 years, 19 years since 9-11 led to some um, episodes of, of cooperation and collaboration, and we're still seeing the fruits of that today, but also led to some division between uh, traditional allies. Will we see another event like this? You, you know, many have said, many over the years have been concerned about, you know, some sort of military operation, some sort of terrorist attack, something like this. And ultimately, it's a pandemic that has brought its the world to its knees right now. Are there other forms of terrorism that are more effective than what we saw happen 19 years ago? Yeah, it'll be, it's increasingly, I mean, it, it's very improbable that you'll see a repeat of the specific tactic used in 9-11, the use of airlines, turning them into missiles, right? Um, that's something that terrorists have dreamed about for a long time, but to do that again today will be difficult. But they innovate in different ways, right? So ISIS was very fond of using drones and other high-tech uh, devices for kind of rudimentary bombing. Um, they've also explored different forms of explosive devices. Um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq in 2006 and seven used chlorine bombs, right? So, again, rudimentary kind of chemical warfare. Um, I think one lesson that is problematic that ties the pandemic to the future of militancy is simple fact that societies have been shuttered and economies have been hammered because of the global pandemic and our response to it. So if you're a militant thinking about it, you know, if you have the capability to do this, you might want to invest mm-hmm. some form of, attack that kind of mimics the effects of the pandemic so some kind of biological uh, uh biological attack right that would lead societies to 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 uh, close in as as we have as uh, um, as a result of the pandemic I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's likely but i think if you're thinking ahead over the next 19 years um there's probably room for some some pretty nasty innovation in, in the chemical and and biological warfare space for militants to make use of, um, and then they could, 
you know, surprise us once again as we were um, 19 years ago. Does this anniversary still have the impact that it once did? I think if you had asked that question last year, the answer would have been yes. But I think um, we are simply in such a dramatic, globe, a really, truly global uh, concern and issue mm-hmm. that, um, and, and the effects of what we're living through now with the pandemic are so dramatically um, powerful compared to the effects of 9-11 that um, it puts it all into perspective. 9-11 was dramatic and it led to changes in geopolitical geopolitical space and domestic space, intelligence, and so forth. But I think the scale of what we're witnessing now is something of a different order of magnitude. Um, So I think it puts it into perspective. Alex Wilner has been with us, Associate Professor of International Relations, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Alex, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you. More on this when Rick Zampern and Roy Green join us when we return. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. It was 19 years ago today, this morning specifically, uh, September 11, 2001. Uh, planes, two planes, jets uh, flown into the World Trade Centers, uh, another into the Pentagon, another crashing into a field in Pennsylvania. Memorials going on at... Uh, uh, all over America uh, in regard to this situation. Everybody remembers where they were or what was going on and when they heard this uh, tragic news. And then remember in the minutes and hours afterwards trying to figure out what was going on. Was this a crash? Was this something deliberate? And then, of course, uh, the second plane went in. We're going to bring in uh, Roy Green, three tri- uh, three-time consecutive winner of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters National Gold Ribbon Award. Wow! And a host of the Roy Green Show every weekend on the Chorus Radio Network and once did this show for many, many years and great to have him with us. Roy, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. So, you, you know, I remember where I was and, and being on the air at a music station and just coming off the air as this was happening at 8.45. So 8.45 to, to 9 o'clock, kind of figuring out what was going on. You would have been just going on the air at that point. What was it like that day as you're, you're, you're starting your show and, this, and this, this, at first, I guess, people may have thought it was an accident and then an attack. How did that evolve that morning? Well, that morning we were planning on doing a program on education in Ontario. We had everything in place. We had the guests in place, and we'd set it up the day before. And uh, I was actually walking from my office to the studio, just turning the corner. You know the hallway well. Turning the corner and, uh, and making my way to the studio when someone shouted, there's been a terrible accident. A plane has crashed into a building in New York City. We didn't know what building. We just knew that a plane had crashed. And uh, so I poked my head into the newsroom and I said, do you have anything more on this? Or when you find out more, please let me know. And I went into the studio, Scott, and I started the show on education. And then it started. The news and the information started to really flow very quickly. And in the first 20 minutes, we knew that something really serious had taken place. We knew that it wasn't just a case of a plane crashing into a building. We knew that this was really, really serious because we heard that it was a jet that had hit one of the World Trade Center uh, buildings. And so everything changed. Everything changed. Our, our broadcast changed, and we had to change it on the fly because we didn't have immediate contact with New York City. So we took what we could from Canadian press and other sources. And meanwhile, I started calling my associates, or at least friends I had at WABC Radio in New York City, and said, is there any way you can hook us up with one of your reporters if you have people on the ground? And remember, Scott, throughout this now, we're talking about the first hour, more and more information is coming. We're finding out more but the gaps in information are huge, so I really wanted to talk to somebody on the ground. And they said, yeah, we can have you speak with George Weber, who was their key reporter at the time, and he had gone immediately gone down to the site of the World Trade Center. And I heard some of the most harrowing things I've heard in my life as a broadcaster, Scott, from George Weber, who reported on – this is hard to, uh, to, uh, to talk about – he he reported that being close to the site of the building, which was still standing at that point, the first they were both still standing at that point. And he said, "I'm looking up through the smoke and the haze, and I I'm not worried about that. What I'm worried about 
And folks, if you if you're very if you're sort of fragile today, maybe just turn away. From, well, block your ears for thirty seconds, mm-hmm. because George Ta- said he wasn't really so terribly concerned about looking up and seeing the smoke and not being able to see the top of the building, but he heard sounds as bodies were hitting the sidewalk. Oh my! And. Scott, I have never found myself in a situation before that, and we covered some very difficult stories over the years, but I never found myself in a situation where, and you know me, I'm not the most emotional guy in the world, uh, I was close to tears because we started to put things together, uh, and incrementally, again, the information started to flow Uh, I spoke with a man named Vincent. We were able to, WACBC put us in touch with a number of New Yorkers who'd spoken to them who were willing to talk to us. And I remember speaking to a man named Vincent. And he talked about seeing someone falling from the World Trade Center wearing a blue suit and a red tie. Obviously had no idea who that person was, but he saw the blue suit and the red tie as the man fell to the ground. And these are the stories that struck us with such force. And then uh, the rest of the morning evolved and the, the towers fell and, and, and the reports came in, uh, in, in sequence. All, it, that, there was a sequence to it, which was odd, but at the same time, there was a, a chaotic reality as the planes stopped flying uh, and I stayed on the air long past my n- noon usual sign-off time. I remember speaking with uh, a pilot who had been in Manitoba flying um, uh, a medical flight as the planes were being ordered out of the sky. And we all, we all remember what happened in Gander with more than mm-hmm. 6,000 people suddenly appearing in that small community and how wonderfully the people of Gander took care of these 6,000 spontaneous arrivals. But this pilot told me that he had been told he should land at the nearest airport, but he had somebody on board who needed immediate medical attention. He needed to get to Winnipeg, and he had to get special permission to fly to Winnipeg and land the plane and not put down you know, the next available airport. Wow. The next available airport didn't have a hospital that they needed for the patient, so he had to get special permission. And I can't remember now, Scott, whether he said there were fighter jets alongside him or, or whether that's just something that that I recall from another conversation, but uh, yeah, it was. It's a jumble of memories. It really is a jumble of memories, and the developing story. You know, we spoke to police officers in New York City again, made available to us through WABC, who, who talked about running toward the building, or seeing their colleagues running toward the building while others were running away. That's what cops do. Um, and by the time it was the broadcast was over, and I don't recall if I was on the air till two or three or four or however long I was on, it was so exhausting, so emotional. Uh, I saw people in the hallways at CHML just leaning against the wall. Other people were crying. Intercom. It was uh, It was a day like no other. When did you realize that this was not a plane crash, that this was, in fact, a deliberate act? What was it like when that second plane hit? Oh, my. Yeah. We, we, we had a feeling that it wasn't an accident before the second plane hit. But the second one really uh, made it clear. And all you're thinking is, it's confusing. Uh, yeah, I was... One of the first thoughts is it has to be an act of terrorism. But then you're trying to put together, again, on the fly while you're broadcasting, how could this possibly happen? And who do we need to call next? How do we put this together? Who do we know who's an aviation expert? Who do we know who's into aviation security? Who can provide us with more information? Because at the same time as you're feeling the emotional impact of what's going on, your responsibility as a broadcaster, as a journalist, is to provide information. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're sort of being tugged in both directions. I, I want to say that there was tremendous support from the CHML newsroom. Uh, everybody stayed longer. Everybody worked hard. Everybody was on the story. Everybody chased down whatever they could, where their Canadian connections, and there were. 
And over time, we started to speak with Canadians who had family who had been in the World Trade Center. But you know, Scott, the thing that I remember, I think one of the, one of the high-impact moments was uh, one of our stations, Rock Station in Hamilton, had had a contest, and they'd sent a winner to New York City hmm. uh, for a few days. Broadway plays, the usual sort of you know, fun time. And she was on the air with the morning host from the rock station, just describing what the trip to New York was like. And then you hear the scream. And she just happened to be looking out the window at the World Trade Center when the plane hit the building. And the scream from this person who'd won the trip to New York, I can still hear that. It was so shattering. And it spoke, I think that scream spoke to the emotions that were felt by millions. Yeah, it was. Um, we we just over over time, or over the three, four, five, six, seven hours, had a broader picture. We knew about Flight 93 in Pennsylvania. We found out that a plane had gone down there. We knew that a plane had hit the Pentagon, and of course, nobody knew how much bigger this was going to turn out to be. We nobody knew. Um, I wish I could really paint a. Uh, a clear picture for you, but there was, it was a morning of confusion, a morning of questions, a morning of developments, a morning of horror. You painted a perfect picture. Does this anniversary still have the impact? What's it like during a pandemic? I don't know. Uh, a generation of young people has grown up with it being history. If you're 20 years of age, you have no recollection. Um, I, I don't know. I hope so. Um, I do hope so. I, I spoke with uh, a man named Ben Wainio. This was in the subsequent days. Ben's daughter, Elizabeth, was on Flight 93. And she had called her mother from the plane. And they were on the phone for 10 or 11 minutes, unbeknownst to the hijackers. And then Ben Wainio told me his daughter, Elizabeth, said to his mother, to, said to her mother, Mom, they're about to take action, yeah. passengers. I'm going to hang up now. Because she didn't want her mother to hear what was going to happen. And Mr. Wainio was, again, a conversation that is sort of seared in my memory. I'm thinking about this 27-year-old woman on the plane calling her mother to say goodbye. Uh, and then one year later, you went down there for the anniversary, and we all remember that it was there was it seemed to have just as much impact as as the actual day. Many were even worried that there would be another attack on the anniversary yeah. of of nine eleven. And I know that Rick Zampern is with you, uh, our news and sports director for nine hundred CHML, who was working with you that day, uh, and and can join us. But talk about what it was like to go down there a year later. Oh boy! Uh, first of all, I never could have. We never could have pulled off the broadcast if it weren't for Rick's genius at pulling disparate threads together and making them all work into one broadcast. It was one of the most amazing jobs of broadcasting I've ever witnessed. But to go there, uh, for me, the most compelling moment, and I don't know if Rick agrees with this, but for me was the night before Rick and I went to, um, to the site of the World Trade Center. And it looked like a construction site that was just starting out, but it was eerily dark. And then right beside the, the site was the St. Paul's Church and the wrought iron fence, the tribute fence, thousands and thousands of personal tributes uh, hang, hanging on the fence, you know, from police, fire departments, um, politicians, mums and dads. But what really struck me was a little cardboard, piece of cardboard, maybe 8 by 12, and written on the cardboard in the child's writing was, I love you, Daddy. That just blew me away. I will never forget that night. And Rick, is Rick on the line? I'm here, Roy, yes. Hey, Rick, remember when, the, uh, when we wanted to take the limo to, uh, to the World Trade Center site? And the guy wouldn't, he couldn't stop because he wasn't a taxi. So we climbed in while it was moving. And remember what he said when we asked him to take us to the site? Yeah, he couldn't go there. He just could not go directly to the site and basically forced us out blocks away. I, I remember the, the, there's so many things that stick out from that trek a year later. One of the things was just the cavernous space that was Ground Zero. Yeah. You know, even a year later, yeah. 
Yes. Um, front end loaders hauling away debris in the just the eerie silence yeah. uh, of a bustling city of millions upon millions of people. It was just dead silent. It was. The tribute fence, although I don't recall the names or even the faces of those who were missing, you know, you kind of see the profiles in your memory. But the teddy bears that were tied to the fence, the messages of, you know, missing and, and here's the phone number to call if you see this person. You know, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Yeah. And, you know, the other stark memories for me are, you know, going to Yankee Stadium and, you know, the God bless America in the seventh inning. I had the biggest lump in my throat because people around me, and we're talking 40, 50,000 people in, in Yankee Stadium, so many of them around me crying because they just couldn't hold it in any longer. And I'm in the upper deck behind home plate in the back end of a double header, um, and I, I, I barely held it together. Yeah, you also went up the Empire State Building. Going up the Empire State Building, and the security was absolutely rigid. It was unbelievable. I mean, they basically nearly strip-searching people. It was that intense. And I remember going to the top and even going up to the, uh, up to the elevator, and I remember you telling me beforehand, are you sure you want to go up there? Yeah, I was, I was worried about you. I, you know, there was a little bit of trepidation, but I, I, I had, you know, how many times do you get to New York? And I haven't been back, and I do want to go back, and one day I will. But, you know, going up that elevator and then getting to, you know, the top and just seeing the cityscape and what a marvelous city that is and what a bustling city it is, uh, you know, it took dozens of pictures and got emotional. And then doing the, the two shows that we did with the unbelievable roster of guests um, was just so special. And, you know, Roy and I chuckle because the the one memory that does stick out is Dr. Joy Brown, who broadcast for years on CHML overnight. Roy was getting a little hoarse. He had a, you know, he's fighting a cold. I was sick as a dog. Yeah. And, you know, he's trying to hold his voice together over two monumental broadcasts. And, uh, you know, we, we run into Dr. Joy Brown in the hallways of WOR, and she basically, you know, points at me, and points to the downstairs to say, get this man some medication. Get him some Robitussin, some <laughs> some narcotics to get him yeah. upright and retaining fluids, as you yeah, always say, Scott. Said, Why are you still standing here? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're getting some celebrity uh, treatment there, yes, Roy. Yes, definitely. Oh, and she you was know, clearly. in that black leather suit, and, and she was she was really... She was quite a presence, eh, Rick? Oh, huge. But she was so... And New Yorkers were all so gracious about us coming there yeah definitely they yeah. hugged us and they were crying and thanking us for for coming to new york on the anniversary and spending time with them it was it was amazing some firefighters from california gave us pins and little flags and it was a it was a an incredibly emotional experience and the broadcasts both of them uh, were we did have an incredible roster of guests and i remember rick with about four or five phones coordinating everything <laughs> grabbing people, bringing them into the studio. Meanwhile, I'm trying to hang on. I've got no voice left. Uh, but it, the, the most amazing thing was that we, we were there. Hey, Rick? Yeah. We were there. And, and it's something I will carry with me for, for the rest of my life. Um, boy, Scott, I could, I'm sure Rick could as well. We could talk to you for the rest of your show uh, about, about the experiences. You know, uh, clearly, you, you can we can all hear the impact in your voice that this had on you. Uh, one thing that you said, uh, Rick was uh, referring to uh, on the year anniversary, was everyone, and, and I'd forgotten about this, but remember in the days after, everybody was holding up these pictures of their loved ones, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. just trying to find them, because these people, these people were vaporized. They were gone. Yeah, they were. And here you are a year later, people still looking yeah. and, for those answers. Yeah. And what I also remember is Canadian families who'd lost family members who'd been in the World Trade Center buildings, talking about how gracious George Bush had been to them, how the President of the United States had sought them out, because we put all the families together, uh, American and Canadian families and other families who had lost loved ones, and they said that 
President Bush had taken time to talk to each and every one of them. wasn't rushed, really talked to everybody, and they were so impressed with, with the President of the United States. <sighs> My goodness. Uh, like you said, we could talk about this all afternoon uh, and, and do the latter part of the show just on what's happening in the United States, Roy. I'd love to do that with you. Um, but, but thank you so much to both of you for sharing these stories. Obviously, they're incredibly personal. Obviously, uh, they're incredibly meaningful and, and touching. And, and as you're telling these stories, I can imagine how you're feeling as I'm getting goosebumps up my spine. So thank you to Roy Green, uh, host of The Roy Green Show, every weekend right here on the Chorus Radio Network across the country, and Rick Zamperin, News and Sports Director for 900 CHML. They both went down and broadcast live on the one-year anniversary of 9-11. And Roy and Rick, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank thanks, you, Scott. Scott. Appreciate the opportunity. We're going to get another member of CHML on the air talking about their experience with this day. Former morning man, the legendary Bob Rutina, is going to be joining us. It's like old home week talking about 9-11. Bob was on the air when this all went down. We're going to get his perspective when we return. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, 19 years since uh, the 9-11 attacks, uh, including uh, New York City and, of course, the Pentagon and that field in uh, Pennsylvania. And it's kind of bizarre uh, talking about all of this in the middle of a pandemic 19 years later. Uh, it's, it's just such a horrific date in the minds of people. And, and as Roy said, uh, a generation has passed since then that, that, that have grown up without this at all, other than, uh, these memories. So it's a, it's a little bizarre, uh, commemorating this date, uh, during a pandemic. But, uh, I want to introduce you to another legendary broadcaster, uh, from CHML, uh, morning man on CHML for many, many years. And now your MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, Bob Bertini is with us. Bob, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, great, as a matter of fact. And I was pleased to uh, be able to join you because I have vivid memories uh, just closing off the show before uh, 9 a.m., the morning show, and then all of a sudden this uh, terrible occurrence. Tell us about that day, Bob, because it was about 8.45 that this happened. Again, you would have been in the last few minutes of your show, but, but what was the information at that time? It was really interesting because uh, I'll tell you, first of all, I know exactly what I was doing on the air. I was interviewing mm -hmm. Kathleen Robertson, a Hamilton actress who was about to uh, star in uh, a movie about Evelyn Dick called Torso. Mm -hmm. And that it was supposed to uh, play on Sunday on CTV. And the whole thing got washed out, and our, our conversation actually suddenly had to be ended because all of this uh, activity was taking place in New York. But uh, to the point, it sounded like at first when people were running into uh, my studio from the newsroom that maybe one of those uh, traffic helicopters or planes had hit you know, some sort of an accident with, with a small aircraft. And so uh, as I got off the air and ran into the newsroom, the second plane hit. And I said, that's no little plane. That's, that's yeah. a big passenger plane. And from then we knew that uh, something very, very uh, tragic uh, was taking place. But that was the way it was, uh, live radio, and we had to respond instantly, uh, which is part of the excitement. I was also, it's funny, you know, in 1966, there was a big blackout in North America. And yeah. I was in Guelph. It was in the evening. And the uh, uh, all of a sudden, the lights kept going out. And then we got this emergency procedure from, uh, from uh, the broadcast people that you had to start making these announcements. So I said to the, I called the station manager and I said, what do, what do I do? He said, well, do those announcements. The uh, the Italian show was on, but play the commercials. So I said, well, hmm. we'll be right back after uh, with more emergency information. Right. <laughs> An Italian commercial. That was in 1966. We're talking about 2001. And that, uh, Scott, led to uh, two very interesting things that most people aren't aware of. The first they might be aware of is that the city... The next day, that day and the next day, became eerily quiet, and there were cruisers all over the city. 
Mm. Because there are um, protocols for potential attacks that they don't tell us about, and you know, you know, they don't post things in the paper. So that was going on. Secondly, I had to go to McMaster University the next day. I was actually uh, the the hospital recording their message. Hello, you've reached McMaster University Hospital, mm-hmm. and so, you know that that little message. I actually did that at one time. So going into the hospital. I could see something strange was happening. Rooms were being taken over with computer banks. And I said, what's going on? They said, they're preparing to take burn patients from New York. Mm. And then what happened was there were very few burn patients because most of them died on yeah. the spot or you know falling out of the building or so on. But McMaster University Hospital was actually preparing to take potential burn victims from New York. So these protocols exist that aren't generally talked about, but there were two, increased police presence on the street over the next few days and uh, preparation for emergency uh, hospital procedures for people from New York. Do you remember what your show was like the next day, Bob, once you had 24 hours to digest all of this? Yeah, it was... um, it was really, nobody knew how to um, deal with the fact because it, we weren't sure whether there was an all-out attack on North America taking place or a kind of a one-off crazy, and, and you understand now in hindsight what was actually going on. Mm-hmm. But, but nobody knew. And so uh, we were basically just trying to keep every expert we could and actually had a photographer from uh, a Hamilton who was in New York. So I remember interviewing him and the name just slips my mind right now because that was 19 years ago. But we started to get um, people who were in New York City at the time uh, and were able to connect with them and use some of that information on the radio. And Roy Green will tell you more about that because he went into the talk show format. We still had to do our normal morning show traffic drive and, and all of that stuff. But it there, there was an eerie a sense of not knowing really what was happening and whether there would be more terrorist attacks. Because remember, all of the planes were grounded in North yeah. America, mm-hmm. all of the passenger planes. And I said this on CHML the next day. I'll never forget it, Scott. The luckiest people in North America are the people who were forced down in Newfoundland Hmm. at the Gander Airport because of the traditional, historic Newfoundland outreach to people. Mm -hmm. That ended up in that musical. Yeah, it's not something. Which is a hit musical, which took, you know, 15 years to get around to producing. But uh, it was amazing. People were going out to the airport in Newfoundland, and we were getting those stories on the air. People from Germany, come out with me. Where are you going? You're coming to my house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they'd take them there and put them up for a couple of days. And uh, It was strange that the only planes that actually moved, and this is part of the uh, conspiracy of the whole thing, were members of the Bin Laden family who were allowed to fly out of the United States. And you can read all of conspiracy stuff on google or you know on the internet there's questions about that does this state still have the impact that it did uh even last year now with this uh, pandemic yeah uh, the impact i mean we we will never forget scott watching live coverage well, those of us who did, now maybe the impacts are different for a millennial person, mm-hmm. you know, like this is 20 years ago. So it would be a couple of years for folks born in that era, well, more than a couple to start to to take it into account. But for those of us who watched it, one of the enduring memories I have is seeing live coverage on site and hearing thud, 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 yeah. thud. And that was the thud of people leaping from the building uh, just to get away from the flames and, and jumping to their death. Those of us who who took it in can't ever forget it. And I can't really uh, speak for, as I said, you know, people who would be in their 
early 20s or something like that, how they would respond to it. The photographer was Dave Grugan. We just got a, an email oh, from Dr. Frank uh, Stecky. Dave, exactly right. Dave Grugan, still, yeah. Dave's still doing work for me. And yeah, and, and he uh, he was uh, doing something in in New York at the time. And Doctor Stetchy, I'm glad to hear from him. He's a really great guy, and uh, he's got a better memory than I have. Anyway, but uh, it was such a time. And but the other thing, Scott, is being on the radio. And it, we had the ability, at least to try to respond and respond immediately and take in whatever information was going on and then uh, reach out to folks like Dave Gregan who were able to call in and give us further insights into what was happening at the time. We worked in a, and still work in a great medium. And it's, there's something special and different about radio that, that we tell those stories that, that, that people haven't forgotten. And so, um, God forbid that anything like that should ever happen again. But I've been through a few of them. As I said, like the New York, uh, that was the first one, emergency broadcast. You know, not trying to understand what was going on and, 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 and so on. So, But I, I really appreciate the ability to come back and, and speak to you, Scott, because those memories are so vivid. Kathleen Robertson, great Canadian actress from Hamilton who, I was so excited about this very uh, big play about uh, Evelyn Dick going on to the air. And then it, uh, they didn't play it back for like six months later. The whole thing was completely mm. uh, put aside for, you know, for obvious reasons. But I, it's funny because I saw her doing a remembrance and she said, oh, I think I was doing an interview on television. <laughs> 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 Bob Bertina has been with us, MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek and legendary morning man, a former morning man for CHML right here. And, of course, was on the air uh, along with Roy Green the day that this all went down. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to share your stories with us. Uh, anytime we get you guys back on the air, the email uh, heats up and everybody loves it. So thank you so much for uh, sharing your stories and be well. Great talking to you, Scott. Thanks so much. Bob Bertina, MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek and former CHML Morning Man, talking about 9-11, the 19th anniversary of. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's bring in Reverend Jim uh, Carrier from uh, Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. He is with us now with his Friday message of hope. Jim, how are you? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. And you got over your vacation? You're unpacked and uh, all the laundry done and such? Well, you know, I hit the ground running, so there's some stuff in the bag that's still there, but, uh, but you know, as I need them day by day, I, I pull out the clean clothes. So uh, that's but, the way you uh, do yeah, it. It's just, it's just a busy time. Yeah, yeah but doing well. So, but doing well. So your thoughts? Uh, kind of a weird day today, 19th anniversary, and I even hate using the word anniversary because it seems like a positive celebration, but obviously marking uh, the 19th year of 9/11 and doing this during a pandemic. It, you know, you're just thinking, my goodness, we need some positivity here. Uh, is it different this year because there is a pandemic, or is this is this day just with every passing year uh, growing less and less significant? Uh, yes to both, I think. Uh, not that it's becoming less and less significant, but it's becoming less and less of a, of a recent memory. Uh, and the pandemic is certainly, um, a, a distraction. Um, every, every September, uh, 11th, um, I, I remember an image that I saw in the newspaper the day after, uh, the attack on the towers. And, uh, it was, it was a firefighter. And, um, the firefighter was walking up the stairs of the tower. Well, there were about yeah. 50 or 60 people running in the opposite direction. I remember that. Yep. And this man is just moving upward. You know, he's moving to to immerse himself in the situation and, and to rescue people. And that is the that's the I know that a lot of people have have an image of, uh, of the plane hitting the tower. And, you know, that comes up certainly in my mind. But the one image that stuck was this firefighter heading in the wrong heading, apparently to us in the wrong direction. But it was the right direction for him. Because his automatic response, his duty, was to was to respond in a good way and to go and rescue people. Now the paper, the, the picture was in the paper because he didn't make it. Yeah. And uh, and 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 it's just um, it's a tough memory. But 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 I just I just cannot get this image. I can even I can even recall the look on his face 
and and he was a younger guy wasn't he it was was a younger guy yeah i remember that picture tired and 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 despaired yeah you know and but he just he just kept plugging along and plugging along plugging along and i just um yeah i'm moved by that picture by that picture every time um uh, when this anniversary comes up uh, but I, th- I don't think it should be something that, that we should forget. I think that we should certainly um, do what we can to remember these kinds of, of tragedies in our lives as a reminder, really, of how vulnerable we are, but how also how, how we're able um, to take care of one another. And, um, I mean, if you look at the strength that came out in that day, not just, I mean, it was a tragedy. There was yep, death, yep. And it was horrible, but still there was just this strength in, in, in human beings, strength in community, strength in the first responders, even strength in, in the people who are watching it at home, uh, that there was just this, this sort of movement toward um, a togetherness, if you will. You know? And I think that that happens sometimes when we're communal victims together, that there is this togetherness and we come out to support one another and stuff. So it's not a fond memory by any stretch for me, but but it is it is those are the things that I, that, that I try to latch onto. It's that Fred Rogers sort of sort mm. of attitude, you know, that if you look where you know, whenever you see trouble, kids, just just look for the people that are helping. And I think that that I think that that's true. That we need to remember that. Uh, we've talked many times on this show about where the world is, divisiveness, uh, pre-COVID-19. We've all also touched on how perhaps the good thing about COVID-19 is it will unite us again. I remember how the world united after that crisis. We seem to have forgotten all of that stuff. Do you think, again, whether it's this or, or COVID-19, that it will uh, make us look inward and, and realize that we're better together than divided? Um, I think I think for the most part, I think that that's still true. I think that there are more people who are cooperating than are not cooperating. And uh, and so I think that, you know, I, you know there are going to be people who are who are going to uh, dissent, if you will, that are going to to reject that that are not going to go along with the flow or even for for what what people might call the common good, but take more of an individualistic approach and and uh, and that's always going to happen but i think that in a general sense if you really look around like like people are wearing masks people are yep. are taking t- taking their precautions there are certainly some exceptions uh, clifton hill and niagara falls uh, uh, being one of them uh, a lot of tourists showing up not wearing masks but i think for the most part people are wearing masks and uh and 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 following what's necessary in order to help one another i think i think that's true if you just open your eyes and look around take your eyes off the media for a second open your eyes and look around your neighborhood look around the restaurant you're in look around the store you're in and i think you'll find that for the most part people are cooperating and people are working toward that common goal good point reverend jim carrier has been with us from good shepherd church in st Catharines. be sure to check out his facebook page jim as always thank you so much for the time much appreciated be well Thank you, Scott. You too. We'll see you next week. God bless. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.